Here's something for you. From today's file on Would You Make This Bet? Our friends over at the U.S. Department of Labor and Statistics estimate that the cost of a bad hire can be as much as 30% of a person's annual salary. Rounding up, that's about $15,000 for somebody making $50,000 a year, $30,000 for somebody making $100,000 a year. I'm not much of a betting person, but that seems like a pretty stiff downside per hire. That's the discussion topic today, and this is today's Recruiting Reality. So hello world, and welcome to the Recruiting Realities podcast by Jovio. As you two gentlemen know, my name is Heather, and I am joined today by Doug Shotterock, my fearless co-host. Doug, if you want to say hello. Hello, everyone. Hello out there. And as, as the name of the uh, podcast goes, and if you remember the probably 10 or 12-year-old um, sitcom here in the States, Reality Bites, and a lot of the topics that we're going to talk about over this podcast are going to be things that are like, yeah, why is this so difficult? And, and we're going to look at the realities of it. And I think hopefully we'll come to some some interesting conclusions of why things are broken and what not broken looks like. And I think as we go through some of that, we'll find that recruiting realities, uh, it is difficult out there. It's a difficult market. And the people that we work with specifically have tough jobs. And the candidates have tough jobs. And I think a lot of the processes and platforms we've put in place for this, you know, only hyper make this hyper reality. And I think what we're going to talk about today is a great, is talking about bad hires. And um, I think that's a good segue to turn it over to our guest today, which is uh, our HR leader, Sanjay. Sanjay, you want to introduce yourself and, and give us a little bit your some of your background? Sure. Hi, Heather. Hi, Doug. It's a pleasure to be a part of this podcast. Uh, I am Sanjay. I had human sources for Jovio. I've uh, got around 23 years of experience in different functions, but eventually I landed where uh, I think is my real heart and soul lies, which is a chance. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of this conversation, happy to share uh, whatever I have learned uh, over the years about this beautiful profession and interesting nuances that you, you get to deal with in, on a day-to-day basis. Interesting choice of words. Sometimes it's not all that beautiful, <laughs> especially when we talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is the cost of a bad hire. You know, uh, Heather and I'll be peppering you with questions back and forth, but I mean, let, let's just start from your perspective in, in 20 plus years of experience. What is a bad hire? I mean, I think a lot of people know, but give us your definition of a bad hire. And let's pull that onion apart. Sure. So if I keep it very simple, a bad hire is someone who you have hired to perform a certain role, but eventually found that person is not able to do that role uh, or not performing in that role effectively. And it could be for various reasons. You know, person is not either a cultural fit, does not have the right work ethics, does not have right combination of knowledge, skill, or abilities, or person simply exhibited some problematic behavior. You know, essentially someone who is not the ideal fit and is not able to deliver, not able to perform effectively in the role, 
I would call him or her as a bad hire. You mentioned a couple of things. I think if you look at just the bad behavior aspect of your answer, it's like, okay, that's an easy one. Um, toxic workplace, perhaps harassment kinds of issues. Those are easy to identify. I'd like to focus the conversation today maybe more on what are the more difficult bad hires. And I'll give you a, a quick story. My wife, um, she manages a small uh, professional group. She's a veterinarian. And it wasn't in her clinic, but within her region, they hired a person who was, let, let's say, marginal at their job. The interesting part of that bad hire is that there were three other people in the same kind of position that doing the same job and doing it well, that found out with pay transparency and everything else that's going on in today's HR market, that this person was making more money. So in this instance, I'm going to kind of turn the table and say, is it always the candidate's fault or did, is the company at fault for some of these hires? Whereas this person came in and wasn't really a bad hire is the way you wasn't a behavioral problem, marginally good at their job. But what happened is they lost three other people who quit and took other jobs because they saw that person going, hmm, something's not right here. I mean, does that fall into the bad hire category? Yes, you could you could put that because it has an impact. It it had an impact in terms of you losing, you know, some of your experienced resources. Not it may not necessarily be that person's fault, or you can't possibly, you know define that person as really, really bad hire, but it somehow reflects that your hiring processes were not robust enough to take into consideration a lot of other nuances. You know, the fitment, the cultural fitment, uh, the compensation kind of parity, looking at right experience for right kind of role. So I think those sort of finer nuances, you know, which are equally important for somebody to be able to fit in well within the role or perform well and also ensure that everyone else in the team is equally effective. Uh, that didn't happen. Yeah. So it it eventually, in my mind, didn't yield the optimal outcome. And uh, in, in that sense, it was a bad hire. And there is no guarantee that, uh, you know, the other people will not leave, you know, if some of those things are not set right. So it's like a spiral. If, if you get someone who you haven't really given a good thought into a lot of things. You know, some of the things that I mentioned could kind of spiral into a lot of negativity in the team, loss of focus, lack of motivation, and then you will have to make a decision, you know, whether it was the right hire or not. And obviously, in my mind, I think you will end up making a decision that it was a bad hire. So I think, Sanjay, you, you touched on a few different groups of stakeholders, if you will. Uh, who are affected by this bad hire. So the team, obviously, uh, was one aspect of that. Who else is commonly affected by bad hires? I can think of the, the individual, the client, possibly. Who else? Can you dig into that a little bit for us? Well, I think that's a, that's a very important question, uh, Heather. So if you make bad hire as a center of universe and and see who are who are the people who revolve around this person or who this person touches or interacts with, uh, I think bad hire you would see would impact quite a few people. You talked about team, obviously, you know, team will get impacted uh, for the reason that we mentioned: loss of morale, motivation, maybe a conflict of some sorts. Company 
who has invested a lot of time, effort, resources to go through the recruitment process will also be at a losing end, loss of productivity. And eventually, if you make a decision to hire that person or hire for that role again, you'll have to again invest time, effort, money. So companies at loss, look at it this way. You know, a person is a microcosm and organization is a macrocosm. So what you see in organization as as a macrocosm is represented in, in that employee as a microcosm. You know, because employee is the smallest unit that represents that organization. Now that person is also interacting with various employees. If the person is not right person culturally, or right for the role in terms of productivity, in terms of competence, values, it's going to impact other employees as well, whether within the team or in the rest of the organization. Uh, look at the manager who has to manage that person. is going to put a lot of pressure on that person. How do I deal with this? I mean, do I invest time in coaching, mentoring, or correcting that person's mistakes, or passing on some of the substandard work that person may be doing to someone else to correct. So manager is also under a lot of pressure. Well, I think there's also then to that managing bad hires is different than managing an employee or a team. If a team's running smooth, management's easy. So the fact is the manager may not even be equipped to manage this particular employee. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it could start impacting managers' productivity or, you know, focus because, you know, a lot of time, effort, mental bandwidth is, is going to be spent on this person. We didn't touch upon another thing, which is uh, uh, clients. There's going to be huge adverse impact on clients and customers if if person is in a customer-facing or customer-service kind of role. It could, it could lead to damaging your reputation or loss of business. Or if you have some high-quality customers, they might uh, might very quickly form a very negative perception about what's going on in the company. So, yeah, uh, bad hire has lost. Yeah, we all, and we all know how, what is it, people, is something like people are 10 times more likely to tell about a negative experience than a positive one. My stats are probably dead wrong, but significantly more likely to pass on uh, a bad review. That's an interesting, interesting thought process. Sanjay, because clearly it's a huge impact. If it's poor client experience, it could have a revenue impact and churn impact. But at the same time, I don't think companies can look to their clients to be identifying their bad employees. <laughs> I think it's kind of incumbent upon the company to you know monitor their employees, monitor their effectiveness, and take actions as required so that clients are not... When your clients are making these decisions it's probably too far down the line to, to help out. So let's kind of change the topic a little bit to how do you identify a bad hire? And, you know, what are the steps that somebody should take? I mean, it's always not clear. Right. So uh, it's, it's a great question. I think, uh, uh, you know, organizations, many times they find out uh, only when there is uh, a damage starts to occur and then they start doing analysis. Is this because of this person? So, you know, it all starts with while you're onboarding a person, did you onboard that person effectively? In their orientation or assimilation period, you'll get some some signs whether whether the person is a culturally right fit, understand nuances of the role, is picking up the basic aspects of the role quickly and effectively or not. So I think those initial 
couple of weeks will throw a lot of hints at you, which will we should be very quick enough to kind of uh, do a, a quick hypothesis whether you've had a right person, whether the person is effectively performing the role or not. So once you've found that no, person is not, then comes the the real tough task. Now, what do you do next? And many a times, uh, Heather, Doug, I, I have seen uh, in organizations, there is a sunk cost fallacy associated with bad hire. Many times when you have spent a lot of time, effort to get someone for a specific niche role, uh, which is not easy to fill in. So you you kind of stick on with the person, think, think that things will change automatically over a period of time, but that doesn't happen. So once you have identified, you've got to move very quickly, swiftly to identify that whether this issue, this problem could be resolved with coaching, mentoring, training, does it fall in that kind of zone realm? If if that's the case, invest time in that. But if you know for sure this is not going to help, then you'll have to quickly look at managing that person out before damage starts becoming very, very apparent and clear. Let me ask you a question, Sanjay. I've heard increasingly of people uh, doing hiring on a trial basis, basically doing a month-to-month contract as a way to kind of in lieu of a of a trial period i mean for a long time it was called temp right or temp to hire is what a lot of uh, the staffing firms would used to use temp to, you bring them on as a temp and then if you like them after x amount of time you hire them permanently but yeah that's a great question it's it seems like it's becoming more widespread what what are your thoughts on that as an approach to preventing bad hires Oh, that's a, that's a great uh, point, Heather. I really don't have a definitive view whether this is the right process or wrong. It depends where are you using that kind of approach and how effectively do you manage that? Because one of the connotation that is associated with a temp kind of a role or contract role is that it may not be a permanent role or it's just a temporary assignment. So it might become difficult for you to kind of get best of the people to apply for that role. And we have seen that you know, as soon as you say, hey, it's a contract role, it's a temp role. But if you perform well, we will try and kind of convert into full-time employment. And if you make that kind of pitch for someone who's really, really good, unless they are under tremendous pressure to kind of pick up an assignment very quickly, they will be reluctant. They would look for more certainty and, and, and more permanent sort of a role. However, if you believe the risk associated with somebody not performing in that role is much higher than you trying to kind of experiment with this arrangement. And I would, you know, you persist with it, make it more attractive for person, either monetarily or terms and conditions that you show that if you perform really well after three months, should be really, really attractive enough to really, you know, look for that that transition from contract to permanent or, or for more long-term assessment. So, uh, I think it's it's a very nuanced subject or topic in that sense. So you will have to make that call, have to make it really effective, attractive from employee experience, candidate experience perspective. They should be able to view value in that kind of arrangement. At the same time, you should be able to address your risks that are associated with, you know, someone not performing in that role if, if you hire someone long-term uh, in the first go itself. <laughs> Or, or having somebody who performs really well and then moves on at the end of your three-month contract. That's also a risk. That was a great question. Let's kind of go down one last thought process. 
Let's talk about bad hires in the frame of multi-generational workplaces. Baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z. Um, I probably missed two or three. It's interesting. How do you keep bias? There are two instances I can think of. One is you've got a baby boomer who's the manager of a millennial. And those two just, they have different attitudes, different work styles. And just because they don't meet, match up, doesn't make it a bad hire necessarily. Could make it a bad manager in some instances. And the other is, and I've seen this, and this perhaps falls more into a diversity line, is you bring on a, a team member that maybe is different from the rest of the team members and the other team members don't like that person and they start to pull that person into a bad hire syndrome. How do you manage multi-generational and how do you keep bias out of this determination? Are there surveys? Are there, are there systems that you can use to try to really determine, okay, this was just a bad hire. We've done all the thinking on it and okay, bad hire. But how do you keep a lot of this other tangential kinds of influences out of it? That's a great question, Doug. And it's a, there, there are a couple of questions there in, in that question, if I could say that. One thing that, that you need to start with as an organization is to make a bold and clear statement that you promote diversity and you have to educate people, hiring managers across functions about making them aware of their own biases, whether you do a training of unconscious bias or whether they make them, uh, you do a training to make them more aware of the characteristics of different generations and how to work with them effectively. Essentially, the cost of not having a diverse culture is very, very high. So you, you could find a very easy way by saying that I'm going to hire only people who are like me. You know, we call that doppelganger effect. Somebody, I am going to hire only people who, who, who just like me. Of course, conflict is going to be much lesser there's going to be more so-called amicable and congenial sort of uh, environment to work in, but the great ideas won't come. The constructive, you will not be able to leverage that to get best of the solutions and innovation and you know diverse views, which eventually is responsible for a lot of new ideas, new generate, I mean new new innovation. So, the point that I'm trying to make is, as an organization, you have to take a stand that yes, we are an organization where we promote diversity. We are open to hiring people with different culture, you know, different generations, different abilities. That is what. Enable your workforce with right training and tools to be conscious of their own biases so that they don't kind of, as you mentioned, very, very aptly that you don't automatically someone who is different than you start creating a narrative around them that they are bad hired. That may not be the case. It may just be two different individuals. So make people aware of that. And uh, last but not least is promote a uh, healthy conflict, harness the energy or, or the outcomes that you get from healthy conflict. It should not be a people-based conflict, but it will be it should be a process conflict. You know, when you are looking at solutions, that the best idea win. Now, create that kind of culture where everyone from different generations who uh, you know who are participating on those debates or Discussions are free to share their views. So it should start with the culture, with training, sensitization, repeat. But I don't think it's terribly uncommon to have job scope creep happen. People are hired for one thing and they end up doing, you know, five things instead of three. But how would you suggest that be addressed? It's a story from one of, one of the organizations that I, I was working at. 
we were hiring for a senior level position and there were two stakeholders who had an equal stake in, in hiring for that role. When we individually had a conversation about what are the critical success factors in this role or what are the critical attributes that you're looking for, both individuals had a very different view. One person was assuming in his mind that the role is going to be market-facing role. It's going to be customer-facing role. Other person was viewing that role to be completely internal-facing role. And when we started showing candidates to them, we found that it's going to be really, really challenging whosoever comes in this role, uh, even if they eventually decide to hire someone. So I wouldn't say that it eventually led to bad hire, but we prevented a bad hire because we got both both the hiring managers, if I could call them so, on a, a, a table and say, hey, you say that this role is market-facing and you say, no, it's not market-facing, it's internal-facing. So let's write a new job description because we don't want to hire somebody who is running in two different directions and is not really able to you know, effectively deliver to both of your so-called requirements. So many a time, job creep, it, it happens. You know, scope increases because the requirements are not clear. The job descriptions are not clear. Many a time, job descriptions are very dated and the role has changed. So somebody's hired based on the job description, but the practically role is very different. And it's not uncommon in today's world to have jobs really metamorphosize into very, very, very different kind of role very, very quickly. In two or three years span, a same role could look very different. So you've got to be cognizant of whether your job descriptions are up to date, whether the hiring managers, the people involved in interviewing, they are aligned on what are those boundaries of those roles. And those have to be calibrated on a timely basis. Uh, and some of the things um, you know that that you can do is uh, to have a cadence uh, within your teams to benchmark those roles in what's happening in the market periodically. Make a note of that, Heather. Uh, next podcast: How your job descriptions create bad hires. I mean, because again, it it covers two things that we talked about. Is okay. The job description says this, and the candidate reads and goes, "Oh, okay." And then the hiring manager has totally different thought process followed by the scope creep which i mean i think anyone who's listening to this probably can find a story in their heart about job scope creep whether it was over time or whether it was a job that they wanted them to do outside of the job description if you have a baby boomer manager they'll say geez just deal with it figure it out just do it you know and and you might have an entirely different generation going like yeah but that's not my strong point. That's not what I was brought on to do. I can see a lot of those situations happening. So yeah, I think, Doctor, I think you're right. I think that'll be a, another reality that we explore a little ways down the road. Yeah, and part of that comes from the technology that we've put in place to try to help the talent acquisition community, but yet we've built, and ChatGPT may not be helping us out because it's standardizing these job descriptions. You know, they all kind of look alike, and then Companies have spent thousands and thousands of people hours to standardize their job descriptions and write them and put them into the ATS so that when this job at this grade is opened and this rec number is given, here's the job description that goes with it without any real thinking at the department, location, or even specific job level. Because even a customer service job, if you're a customer service rep for probably 10 or 20 
SMB, small to medium-sized business clients, and you're a customer service rep for two of the client's company's largest clients, those two roles are different. Those two types of companies are different. So again, as you say, perhaps a topic for another day, but I, I think, Sanjay, you have really brought some, some perspective to this. Great way to close off on that. Oh, I enjoyed this conversation. Definitely. I'm, I'll be back for the next reality next week. That's right. We'll be back and uh, we'll have another. We'll, and while reality might bite, we'll at least discuss it here now and again. Oh, <laughs>